0: Well, good morning, everybody. Here's the problem. Christians in Corinth were going to pagan temples and sitting down to eat. Sitting down to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They figure they're allowed to do this. And here's their argument. It went something a little bit like that. They said... Paul, we're not ignorant. We have superior knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing at all. It's a statue, for goodness sake, not a god. And isn't this precisely what the Old Testament itself says? The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, etc., etc. In Christ we have superior knowledge. We know that there is no God but one God, only one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, we know that food does not bring us any closer to God. We are neither better off nor worse off, spiritually speaking, for eating meat sacrificed to idols. And thirdly, Paul, I am a child of God. I have the right to do anything, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, I have the right to enter a pagan temple. Indeed, I have even more rights to enter a pagan temple than the pagans themselves, and to eat there, giving thanks in Jesus' name for whatever I receive. And uh, although this argument uh, is essentially sound uh, in Every particular and at all points, Paul knows that actually it's uh, simply a justification. It's a rationalization of something that is sinful. In actual fact, they as Christians ought not to be doing what it is that they're doing. Last week, we saw in, uh, when we looked at chapter 8, Paul made the point that their argument might have merit, but it fell not because it was wrong but because it was unloving each of us as christians in community each of us must both anticipate and respect the conscience of other believers the text uh, that naomi has just read to us this morning continues that argument against this one particular practice uh, dining in pagan temples, their practice of eating that which had been offered uh, to idols. And perhaps if if you're joining us for the first time today or you didn't hear last week's sermon, perhaps that wasn't obvious because actually none of that is mentioned in the particular passage that Naomi read to us, uh, the one under uh, our, our discussion today. It's not directly mentioned in this section of Paul's sermon on that practice, but it's actually a long sermon. It's a sermon that began, chapter 8, verse 1, and it's concluded some 74 verses later with verse 1, chapter 11. So it's a long sermon, and we're kind of in the middle of it. Our text today is a step along the way. In today's text, this is what's happening. Paul is anticipating a particular reaction to what he's just said. And he's anticipating that their reaction will be, we're not prepared to compromise our rights for anyone. And Paul's response to that anticipated objection, which we've just read, is, for the sake of the gospel, I'm prepared to compromise everything if only that gospel ministry might not be compromised. And uh, in an age, for us, in an age where righteousness and virtue are often defined in terms of defending rights, defending the rights of others as well as our own rights, we need to hear this message, and we need to hear it clearly. So let's run through it briefly. Verses 1 and 2. Paul reminds them that he is an apostle. An apostle being someone who held the highest office under Christ in the church. Except for Jesus, there's no higher authority. And that's a good point to make, because in what follows, the word rights appears seven times. And that word in Greek is the same word as the word for authority. In other words, he's telling them... I have max authority, and therefore I have max rights. If anybody in this place has rights, it's me, chum. That's the point that he's making. So then, in verses 3 to 12, Paul establishes that he, as an apostle, as a gospel worker, has every right to be supported by the church. Verses 11 and 12, if we have sown in you the things of the spirit surely we will reap from you much by way of the things of the world if others are partaking of this authority from you how much more so us in other words paul had the right in his ministry to the church in corinth to expect from them that they would supply all of his material needs and to do so amply But, and this is Paul's boast, the thing he glories in, he did not use this right. He did not insist on something that was most truly his right. Now, in Acts chapter 18, we hear from Luke, actually, about how this particular church in Corinth was founded. Paul arrived from Athens, about 80 k's away, and soon after arrival, he met some fellow Jews, um, Aquila and Priscilla. They were refugees from Rome. Now, because Aquila was like Paul, trained in leather work, or perhaps uh, tent- making, um, they worked together, Paul working with Aquila and Priscilla, and he stayed with them. And on Saturdays, Paul preached the gospel in the local synagogue. It was only when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia that Paul was able to devote himself exclusively to preaching the gospel, testifying to the Jews that Jesus really is the Messiah. But when that door closed, uh, when uh, they rejected that message, when they got sick of Paul saying that uh, and threw him out, um, the church was founded in the home of of uh, uh, um, Titius' justice, and altogether Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So then, Paul was, as we might say, self-supporting in ministry, first by way of working full-time in his own trade. Then, after Silas and Timothy arrived, there was a group of Christians, Aquila, Priscilla, Silas and Timothy, and perhaps others, non-Corinthian Christians, Christians from other places, who were willing to pay Paul's expenses and to support him in his calling to preach the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles of the Greek city of Corinth. And as an aside, uh, here in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, we get a biblical precedent, a biblical warrant for two different types of missionary work. Firstly, uh, the expression tent-making, which you may have heard as an expression, uh, in Christian circles, the, the expression tent-making means it refers to people who are self-supporting in gospel ministry. A young couple, for example, might be moved by the Lord to to move to another country in order to share the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord. And yet they use the previous training, such as nursing, education, accounting, uh, veterinarian, uh, uh, engineering, something to support themselves on the ground there in their new home. After a while, and especially perhaps if things take off, and others catch the vision for their ministry too, a group of Christians might decide to support uh, uh, this couple uh, from their own incomes in order that they might be able to devote themselves full-time to church planting, evangelism, and discipling, teaching them the word of God. Both strategies are strategic. Well, as with Paul and as with our hypothetical couple, If they were to arrive in a new culture with the message, roll up, roll up, we have a life-saving message for you. But first, pay us your money. Then that obviously would substantially change the message. The the message is, the gospel is a message about being free. So, so, So you can't add a price tag to it. Uh, It's a free message. Jesus has, has paid the price tag. Jesus paid the price for me and for you on the cross by his blood in order that we might go free, forgiven with respect to sin, justified with respect to judgment, loved and accepted. Our sins have been forgiven when we put our faith in Jesus. God paid the bill. Uh, he paid the debt that none of us could repay. To charge people for hearing the gospel would effectively preach a different gospel. Oh, if you pay the right person the right amount, you can atone for your sins and be forgiven. You can save yourself. Just give us your money. And... Uh, that gospel message would, of course, be a satanic distortion and lie. As Paul himself wrote, I wouldn't be caught dead doing that. All of this, all of this defense, all of this explanation for why Paul refused their money comes to us by way of the most well-argued and rigorous defense of paying church workers that there is in the New Testament. And that's slightly ironic, but there you have it. Soldier, shepherd, plowman, reaper, oxen treading out the grain, priest employed in the temple, priest at the altar offering sacrifice, seven metaphors employed in the service of showing the total acceptability of the notion that those who preach the gospel should receive their livelihood from the gospel. The universality of this right and expectation then makes Paul's refusal of his right even more noteworthy and amazing. As an aside, um, Paul's refusal to accept financial um, um, support from the church in Corinth for himself may have been profoundly galling to them in at least two ways. Firstly, their apostle, their, their spiritual and intellectual guru, if you'll excuse the phrase, their apostle was a self-employed trady, a lowly social occupation in their eyes. Dishonorable, not a self-supporting academic and intellectual, not a man of leisure, not as the British might say, a gentleman, not. Secondly, his refusal of their support denied them the honor of being benefactors. A benefactor was a high-status position in their honor-shame culture. And would have given them prestige and power. Paul, in his ministry to the Corinthians, could have made the gospel more attractive by pandering to their cultural values and expectations. But he didn't. If he had, he'd have changed the message. That's what Paul is saying in verses 12 to 17. From there on, onwards to verse 23, Paul uses some beautifully poetic language to restate his point. Verse 18, Therefore, what is the reward for me? It is that in preaching the gospel without charge, I may present the gospel without making full use of my authority by the gospel. For being free from anyone, I enslave myself to everyone. Everyone in order that I might win many. Right at the start of today's text, Paul asks, Am I not free? Freedom, this this status that is so important to the Corinthians, he's free, but then he shows how he voluntarily gives up his freedom for the sake of others. Verse 20, And so I have become for the Jews as a Jew in order that I might win Jews to those under the law, as one under the law, whilst not actually being under the law, in order to win those under the law. To the lawless as lawless, whilst not actually being lawless unto God, but rather lawful of Christ, in order that I might win the lawless. I have become to the weak, weak. In order that I might win the weak, I have become everything to everyone, in order that by all means I might save some. Now, for for those of us who who, who know Paul, perhaps know him from the Book of Acts and, and from his other letters, um, we're already familiar with with this kind of stuff because we're familiar with his willingness to culturally identify with lots of different groups, to become everything to everyone in order that he might by all means save some. So we're not surprised that Paul might act Jewish among Jews, as he did, for example, in Jerusalem, sincerely going through Jewish ceremonial cleansing in order not to isolate or scandalize the community around him. Later in another place, um, uh, um, getting Timothy circumcised in, in order not to cause an offence amongst the Jewish people they were going to serve. We, yeah, he acts Jewish amongst Jews. Uh, we're not surprised that Paul also acts Gentile amongst Gentiles, as he did in Antioch, eating Gentile food in Gentile ways with Gentile believers. So, so we're actually, we're kind of, it doesn't surprise us to hear Paul say that stuff, But then he adds a third category, and that might take us by surprise, because we may not have guessed that his third illustration of this principle would be, be, to the weak, I became weak. Uh, The word uh, weak means, in Greek, it means uh, physically weak, that is, puny or fragile. It means socioeconomically weak, in other words, poor, low status. It means spiritually weak sometimes, that is, lacking in faith, or perhaps somebody with a feeble conscience. And the word also means physically sick, diseased, disabled. And in every one of those four meanings, the word would have been utterly repulsive to the Greeks in Corinth. Weakness was contemptible. What counted was strength the ability to overcome and overpower. And perhaps for that reason, perhaps because it is such a repulsive word to the Greeks, perhaps uh, for this reason we notice that it is one of Paul's favorite words in his letters to, to them. It occurs 13 times in First Corinthians, the highest occurrence for any New Testament document. Weakness frames Paul's thinking from beginning to end. Take, for example, his introduction to his letter. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many aristocrats among you. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. That's his description of them. Later on, he talks about his own ministry. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing And one of the last things he has to say to them uh, at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians is words that Jesus spoke to him. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Kenneth uh, Bailey, uh, in his book, Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes, talks about how many mission agencies assume a position of strength when it comes to serving the poor in other countries, building hospitals, orphanages, schools, agricultural colleges, strong institutions. But strong institutions builds worldly strength. Money, power, prestige, the ability to employ people or not, patronage. And the result is that the rest of the community looks on at the church with at least some degree of jealousy, if not fear and suspicion. When when we do this, we are not servants. We are benefactors, a high-status position. The points to us in this is, if you want to serve, serve from a position of weakness. Serve from a place of needing help, as well as giving help, mutual interdependence. But the point to the Corinthians was this, be very, very careful of any argument that rests upon you insisting upon your rights in order that you might continue to operate from a position of strength. Be very careful in your thinking of that kind of argument. Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, had the right to be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. But instead, not insisting on his rights, he submitted himself to weakness, even death, even death on a cross. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus, to take up our cross, the meaningful sacrifice made for the welfare of others, sometimes the sacrifice of time, sometimes the sacrifice of honor sometimes the sacrifice of money, sometimes the sacrifice of rights, the meaningful sacrifice of the position of strength in order to be weak in serving the weak. Many people have read verses 19 to 23 and accused Paul of compromise. They see in those words something repulsive, uh, something about being inconsistent, Even in his own day, it would have been easy to accuse Paul of compromise. Look, he's one thing with one group of people. He's a completely different thing with another group of people. He's a chameleon. Who knows what he really is? Jesus actually does a similar thing. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He allows himself to be touched by people who were considered sinful or unclean. He asks a Samaritan woman, that he might drink from her cup. What Jesus and Paul are demonstrating is what perhaps we might call a fluid cultural identity. To fellow tradies, Jesus the tradie. To Pharisees and teachers of the law, Jesus the rabbi. Uh, to all human beings, the Son of God, now a human being. Um, in in Japanese churches where, where you find pictures of Jesus, Jesus is Japanese. In African churches, where there are pictures of Jesus, Jesus is African. In English churches, Jesus is blonde with blue eyes. Jesus appears, sorry, God appears to be astonishingly fluid with respect to his cultural identity. But he changes his character. For no one. This, of course, can be deeply confusing and thoroughly repugnant to fallen human beings. Indeed, we usually consider our own personal cultural identity to be priceless and non-negotiable. When a cultural identity is threatened, most people groups usually respond in a murderous rage. Think about that. Indeed, contemporary identity politics is the notion that my most basic human right is the right to have my own personal, individualized, cultural identity. And that is precisely the opposite of what Paul is talking about here. Paul is happy to trash, for the sake of the gospel, what most people consider to be most important. I can think of any number of instances where groups of Christians absolutely, steadfastly refuse to change anything to do with their cultural identity, their dress, their liturgy, their music, their style, the way they choose to do things. They absolutely, steadfastly refuse to change their cultural identity, all the while happily changing the gospel at every conceivable point compromising on every element, the identity of Jesus as Messiah and Lord, the necessity of the cross in the face of human sin, the truth of the atonement in the face of the wrath of God, the fact of the resurrection in the face of eternal damnation. All of this compromised, but not their cultural identity. And having changed the gospel into something unrecognizable, they demand payment and indeed work to create income streams by which to support themselves that are utterly unconnected with gospel ministry. Certainly, I can think of at least one denomination that seeks to serve the world around around it by way of strong, fine, multi-million dollar institutions Schools, colleges, hospitals, aged care facilities, all planted on prime real estate. At least one denomination like that. In our text today, Paul is trashing a system of thought whereby certain Christians in Corinth could continue to eat meat sacrificed to idols And in doing so, in pagan temples, continue to attend their posh dinner parties in pagan temple precincts, precincts, wanting to preserve their rights, wanting to preserve their position of strength, wanting to preserve their cultural identity, wanting to preserve uh, their standing as fine, upstanding members of their community. Paul has a lot more to say to them, and we'll look at that next week. But the pointy bit of all this will be, where do we do just the same thing? Where do we do just the same thing? Am I prepared to surrender my cultural identity for the sake of the glory and honor of Christ? Where will I compromise my rights in order to preach the gospel? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you for sending Jesus to save us, to open up the way through the cross, and for teaching us how to live. Lord, I offer to you my position of strength. I offer up to you my cultural identity. I offer to you my rights and privileges. Father, please give me the strength by your grace to imitate Paul as he follows your Son, indeed, to walk in Christ's footsteps. To God be the glory, now and forever, through Jesus his Son. Amen.